Cow's Dry January going for you. I am doing great. Thank you very much. Okay. I am trying something new this evening. I've never had kombucha before, and it just is kind of a cold and yucky and rainy night, and it's been kind of an eh day at work today, and I really just wanted a glass of red wine, but I'm doing dry January, and it's January 26th, and so somebody said, why don't you try kombucha? And I am here to tell you that kombucha is not red wine. Well, you said uh, January, so this morning I had to help out. um, Should we introduce ourselves? Yeah. I'm Kim. And I am Steve. And you're listening to An Hour of Your Life. Okay, what were you saying? Okay, (laughs) so this morning I had to help out with which I don't mind at all. I enjoy it getting the kids off to the uh, to the bus. Oh yeah! And it was even though it was like thirty six, thirty seven degrees. It was a cold, rank day. It, it, it was yeah. windy. the The rain. It, it wasn't even a hard rain. It just it was just one of those days. I mean, we felt days where it's been in the twenties. It felt warmer than what it was today. It was just. It was one of those, like, it wasn't even gray. It was like a, I don't even know what you would call it, but it was one of those kind of rainy days, too, where it just seeps all the way through to your bones. Yeah, it just chilled down to the bone. It was was a cold morning. And no one out there at the bus stop but the dads. Well, yeah. All the moms were inside nice and warm. They were taking care of the little, little kids. Yeah. Okay. Anyway. sleeping with the dogs. Yeah. So tonight... We're going to leave, we, we've been talking about some current events. Last week, it was a current event. We talked about vaccinations and things like that, which, again, it wasn't supposed to be about COVID, but we we did talk about it, and vaccinations are kind of a current topic. But tonight, we're going to go and do what we love to do, and we're going to go and we're going to talk, we're, we're having a history episode. Yay! You sound absolutely thrilled about that. I thought you I, liked history. I do. That did not come across as I meant it to. Yeah. I am really excited to do a history episode. Yeah. Well, we, we. I mean, we like our current topics, and we like doing our interview shows. I love doing interview shows. And we, I like we've the not done a lot of ability of interview shows. And we've not done a lot of travel shows, but we can't. We can't. Yeah, because we can't travel. <laughs> okay. Yeah. So we've not done a travel show in a while, but tonight. We're going to go back into history. And that's one of the things I like about this because I like reading, researching. I mean, it's topics that we've all heard, but I like going down a little bit deeper than what we've learned like in school or something like that. And so tonight's subject I knew very, very, very almost nothing about. Yeah, well, tonight we're going to tell you the story of the Lindbergh baby kidnapping. Now, growing up, my dad's friends from back in Kentucky, who we obviously knew would come over to the house or we go see them, always called my dad Lindbergh. And there was a reason for this. That was my dad's nickname growing up. Even Mr. Staten, who was a lifelong friend of my dad, and I'm talking lifelong friend with my dad, until the day Mr. Staten passed, called my dad Lindbergh. So let me tell you the story before we get into this, because it's kind of funny. My dad grew up in a very small town called Inez in eastern Kentucky. But back there, most people don't refer to the name where they come from by the name of the town. If you ask somebody from Kentucky where they live, they're most likely going to give you the name of the county where they live. Or their holler. Yeah, or 
the county. <laughs> so I guess, you know, if you're from a large city like Lexington or Louisville, not so much. But my family was from Martin County, Kentucky. Anyway, I think I mentioned my grandfather had many different jobs back in Martin County, Kentucky, and one of his jobs was jailer in Martin County. After the Lindbergh baby was kidnapped, there was an all-out nationwide search for the baby, and we'll get into that detail here in a little bit. So we're going to talk, you know, tell the story about my dad first. Apparently, my dad fit the description of the Lindbergh baby. So. Which, to me, like, I that's hard. I mean, we're talking what you, what this was like in the 30s, right? Yeah. How so? I mean, you can't circulate the picture necessarily as much, but how do you describe a baby? Well, they, there were pictures. The newspapers were able to print pictures and just, through wire. They were able to do that. Babies look a lot alike to me. I, if, I feel like if you've seen one baby, you've seen them all. Anyway, apparently this man thought that my dad looked like the Lindbergh baby. Now, my dad was out playing in the street, probably in front of the courthouse since my grandfather was a jailer. And they lived in the apartment in the jail right behind the courthouse. Well, this man ran over, grabbed my dad, and took him to the courthouse because he thought he'd found the Lindbergh baby. And I guess and there was a reward for the baby. Well, he took my dad inside, probably to the sheriff's office, and promptly told them that he'd found the Lindbergh baby. Whoever was on duty that day said, no, you didn't. That's Dan Harmon's little boy, Arnold. Like I said, it was a small town, and everybody knew everybody. It, it, you know what it reminds me of? What's that? Okay, you've heard uh, Ron White's tater salad. Oh, yeah. When Ron White's doing that little bit about um, when the wire came in and the sheriff, the constable comes to arrest him, and the guy says, is your name Ron White or something like that? And Ron White's just sitting there thinking, you know, it's a small town. He has seen me before. And that's yeah. <laughs> that's just what I'm thinking about here with this. Now, so this guy I, was not from Inez. No, he was like a traveling salesman or walking oh, okay. through. But everybody in Inez knew my dad and uh, knew who my dad was, along with his eight or nine brothers and sisters that lived well, there. Especially if his dad was the jailer in a small town. Like, everybody knows who the jailer is and who the jailer's kids are. So, Yeah. yeah. The, they knew who he was. Everybody in town knew everybody. I guarantee it. But you know what? Nicknames. You you like to nickname people I do. when you I, were doing when you were running the nook. Every kid in the nook had a nickname. <laughs> I don't even do it intentionally. I know but you yes. just you just give them nicknames. I do. You know what, Kim? One day we really do need to sh- do a show on Inez, Kentucky, because there is just way too many colorful characters back there. Way too many stories that are part of that local lore and that local history. I would love to do that. That that would be a really... We could do a travel show on Inez. Yeah, we could. I I think it'd be fascinating. But you know what? I think it's time now we get into this episode. Now, we don't know exactly... This show may be a two-parter just by the notes that we have here and the the amount of notes. So this show may be a two-parter, and that's fine if it does because this is a really interesting part of American history. So the general synopsis is, on March 1st, 1932, Charles Augustus Lindbergh Jr., the 20-month-old son of aviator Charles Lindbergh and Anne Morrow Lindbergh, was abducted from the crib in the upper floor of the Lindbergh's home in Highfields in East Amwell, New Jersey, the United States. On May 12th, the child's body was discovered by a truck driver by the side of a nearby road. 
But before we get, that's the synopsis. Right. And that's what we're going to be talking about. Spoiler alert, the body is bound. Yeah. But before we get into the crime, let's talk a little bit about Charles Lindbergh and who Charles Lindbergh was, because he is a very important person oh, absolutely. in the United States. Um, also, I do want to say... Right led up, to probably the kidnapping of his yeah, son. I also do want to say right up top that the baby's name is also... He's Junior. He's Charles Augustus Lindbergh Jr. That's what I said. Yeah, so... But a lot of the time, we're not going... I, um, we're going to refer him to him as the, the baby. The baby, yeah, or the child, um, to avoid confusion because he and his dad have the same name. Anyway, Charles Augustus Lindbergh Sr., was born February 4th, 1902, um, and he was a, as a 25-year-old male pilot, M-A-I-L, not M-A-L-E. This is the beginning of aviation, the right brother, you know, the plane hadn't been around all that long. Right, 1903 was when the plane was invented, um, so he's older than the airplane. Uh, he became the most famous figure of his time almost overnight. Um, he was a small-town boy from the Midwest, and then on May 14th... Fly over country. I right. To, I had to throw that in there. <laughs> on May 14th, 1927, Charles Lindbergh flew his single-engine plane, the Spirit of St. Louis, from San Diego to St. Louis to New York. That's a lot for a single-engine plane. It's going to be a lot longer flight here in a second. Six days later, on May 20th, day after my birthday, 1927, the Lone Eagle, as he became known... Flew the spirit of St. Louis over the Atlantic Ocean with one engine. He had a compass, five quarts of water, five sandwiches, and that's it. No radio because it was too heavy. I wonder what kind of sandwiches they were. We could have done some research. You I don't pref- like bologna. I don't. I like love bologna, bologna sandwiches. Ugh. It's probably like cheese, liverwurst. I don't know. Yeah. Um, he beat his competitors for a $25,000 prize for the first nonstop flight from America to Paris. Among the other competitors was Richard Byrd, the polar explorer, and six other pilots died trying. Lindbergh landed at Le Bourget Airport some 3,600 miles and 33 and a half hours later and introduced himself to a cheering crowd of thousands. Can you imagine? Now you... Yeah. That's, that's probably what it sounded, what it sounded like. like. Just like it. Only maybe with a French accent. With a French accent. Um, you used to be a pilot. Can, I, have a, I have a private pilot's license. Yes, I do. Can you imagine flying for 33 and a half hours straight? No, because my legs would get all cramped up and I would get tired and sore and I would probably get sleepy. Yeah. Well, he did it. In he a did single it. engine plane by himself. It, and it was small. Spirit of St. Louis, I believe, is hanging in... I think the it's Smithsonian. in the Smithsonian. Yeah, yep. it, it's it's a tiny airplane. I have never. I don't remember ever seeing. I'm sure there's probably newsreel footage somewhere. I've seen it of him landing in. Of Paris. him getting yeah. out of the plane. Yeah. You would think that I would think anyway that when you get out of the plane after 33 and a half hours of being cooped up, like he would probably stumble a little bit because I'm sure his legs were asleep. And I'm figuring he probably wanted to pee. Good chance. I wonder if he peed himself. I'm sure he did. No, no, no. He probably had, he had a, like some sort of adult diaper. No, he probably had a pop bottle or something. Oh yeah, maybe boys can do that. Or a tube. Yeah. Um, but and I also think Drained about rain straight into the Atlantic Ocean. Oh, I there bet. you go. He's got a little trap door. He peed. <laughs> it's raining. Um, I also wonder about blood clots because that is something that we know about. Yep. Uh, from family experience, is that when you travel, um, 
PSA, if you ever travel, no matter whether you're flying or, or driving or whatever, if you're ever in a vehicle for more than two hours at a time, get, get out, out and, and stretch. stretch your legs. It is not an old person's disease. It can happen to a 20-year-old as easy as it can to somebody in 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, or 70s. Yeah, so I wonder, I wonder physically what kind of a toll this took on him. Anyway... Uh, once he landed, uh, Charles Lindbergh received the United States' highest military decoration, the Medal of Honor, for his transatlantic flight. Then later that year, Dwight W. Morrow, ambassador to Mexico, invited Lindbergh to be his guest. At the embassy, Lindbergh met the Morrow's daughter, Anne, and they got married in 1929. Aww. Aww. In the years before the United States entered World War II, Charles Lindbergh had a lot of controversy because of his non-interventionist stance and statements that were interpreted as anti-Jewish. Some believed and suspected that he was a Nazi sympathizer, although Lindbergh never publicly supported support or never publicly stated support for national Nazi Germany. Um, he opposed not only the intervention of the United States, but also the aid the U.S. was giving to the United Kingdom. So he was a little, I mean, during this time, that was not something that, that you really He would have been called a pacifist. Yeah. yeah. Or an isolationist. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. He supported the anti-war America First Committee, so again, isolationism, and resigned his commission in the U.S. Army Air Forces in April 1941 after President Franklin Roosevelt publicly rebuked him for his views. Now, this was before Pearl Harbor. In September 1941, Lindbergh gave a significant address titled Speech on Neutrality, outlining his views and arguments against greater American involvement in the war. However, he did ultimately express public support for the U.S. war effort after the Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor and the subsequent United States declaration of war upon Germany. So once we had a reason to enter the war, once we were directly provoked, then he was like, eh, all right. Yeah, I'm there. Uh, Lindbergh flew 50 missions in the Pacific theater of World War II as a civilian consultant, but he did not take up arms as Roosevelt refused to reinstate his Air Corps colonel's commission. I think that's interesting. In his later years, Lindbergh became a prolific author, international explorer, inventor, and environmentalist. He eventually died of lymphoma in 1974 at the age of 72 years old. I wonder if he was a smoker. I Probably. I'm, I'm assuming, I feel like and a that's lot just people, a generalization because yeah. a lot of people smoked at that time. Now, I do think it's need to important for us to mention that there is a lot of speculation that while in Europe, many believe that Lindbergh was acting as a spy, passing information back to the United States, information about the German Air Force. And a lot of that was set up to make him, to make it a very believable story. Yeah, I mean, I can see it. He's a civilian consultation yeah, guy, so, so he, you know. Yeah, I mean. It's at not the, like he's working directly for the military. At the request of the United States military, Lindbergh traveled to Germany several times between 1936 and 1938 to evaluate German aviation. Famed German pilot Hannah Reich demonstrated the Folkwolf um, 61 helicopter to Lindbergh in 1937, and he was the first American to examine Germany's newest bomber, the Junkers Ju-88, and Germany's frontline fighter aircraft. So there's a lot of speculation that this was all set up as a deception so that he would be more accepted, so and that he there's a good chance a lot of people do believe that he was actually spying for the United States. That surprises me. So talk me through this a little bit as somebody that knows a considerable amount about military history. 
why would the Germans, I mean, I know he's Charles Lindbergh, he's a famous pilot, but he is um, an American, he's an enemy. Why would the Germans allow him to see all of this really cool aircraft? Well, at that time, they weren't the enemy, and I don't think the Germans believed that the United States would be involved in the war. Okay. And, you know, who knows, maybe it was like, let him look at this, and then go back and report and say, hey, look how superior uh, gotcha. our, our weapons is. You know, so I don't like know. it's like a don't, don't. Poke, don't poke the sleeping bear, which is... Yeah, well, I mean, we've been watching Rain on Netflix, so there's a lot of politics, a yeah. lot of stuff going on. Oof. Yeah, so anyway, when the new flying fleet of the United States began to take air, among those who have been responsible for its size and its modernness and its efficiency is Colonel Charles A. Lindbergh. Informed officials here in touch with what Colonel Lindbergh has been doing for his country abroad our authority for this statement and for the further observation that criticism of any of his activities in Germany or elsewhere is as ignorant as it is unfair. Now, General, well, let me, General Henry Hap Arnold, the only United States Air Force general to hold the rank of a five-star general, wrote in his autobiography, nobody gave us as much useful information about Hitler's Air Force until Lindbergh came home in 1939. So this leaves me with lots of questions. And I, that was what it was supposed to do to the Germans. I mean, I get it. I get that, okay, maybe Charles Lindbergh didn't mean all of the isolationist rhetoric that he was putting out because it was to throw the Germans off the track. But he also, he chose to, re, like, renounce his commission in did he the, choose or was he in the asked U.S. To, Army. Or did he choose or was he asked to for the appearance to make it more acceptable and more believable but then, to the people who he's spying on? But then the fact that he, that Roosevelt wouldn't give it back to him, though, that seems strange if I, he was don't know. asked. Don't know. I don't know. Don't know. I, I, mm, I have my doubts about that one. I I don't. I, I I think it was a ruse, and I think he they knew exactly what he was doing. Hmm. That that's just my personal opinion. Anyway, Lindbergh also undertook a survey of aviation in the Soviet Union in 1938. Hmm. Okay, so there we have a little bit about Charles Lindbergh. Let's move on now into what became known as the crime of the century. All right, so remember that Charles Lindbergh has been married now, and they have a little baby, and um, they had lived in an uptown New York hotel since their honeymoon, and then they decided to build a house. They chose a site in the Sourland Mountains near Hopewell, New Jersey, 60 miles from New York, and it was in that new home that the kidnapping took place. Their stone house was livable, but not yet finished, and so the Lindberghs usually only spent weekends there. Most other days, they were at the Morrow family estate in Inglewood, New Jersey. Now, remember, the Morrows were the um, ambassadors to Mexico for United States. The Lindbergh baby, little Charles Jr., had a slight cold. It was really gross weather, kind of like today. Kind of like this morning. So Anne decided that it would be best to stay in the new home that Tuesday instead of traveling back and forth to Inglewood. Later, much was made of the fact that the Lindberghs had decided only that night to stay in Hopewell because how could a kidnapper have known? Yeah, that I mean that was a big part of Hopman's. Well, don't we'll, we'll, we'll get talk, to Hopman. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But. 
Um, so Lindbergh, who is spoiler was reading, alert, <laughs> he's the guy who's going to get accused of taking the baby. Lindbergh, who was reading in a downstairs room, later testified that he heard a strange noise, which he said sounded quote like the slats of an orange crate falling off a chair. That's very specific. It is. It is very specific. Nurse Betty Gow went to the second floor nursery about 10 p.m. and found the baby missing. I mean, the Lindberghs were fairly wealthy and well to do. They were very wealthy. I mean, he, he obviously, when I say profited, as well he should have for what he did. Yeah, and and it's he married rich too. I mean, he married a rich. There's a way to go. He married a rich politician's daughter. Um, so uh, Nurse Betty checked with the parents, and neither one had the baby. So Lindbergh ran into the nursery, saw the empty crib, and said, and they've stolen our baby. A note on the windowsill read. Now, I'm kind of paraphrasing here a little bit. There's some spelling errors and things that... Um, and that's important for later. Right. So... Um, Read it as written. Okay. okay. Dear sir, have $50,000 ready twenty. $25,000 in $20 bills, $15,000 in $10 bills, and $10,000 in $5 bills. After two to four days, we will inform you where to deliver the money. We warn you for making anything public or for notify the police the child is in good care. So let me reread that so that it makes okay, sense. But yeah, we have to explain this. So like when it says 50000 instead it's- of putting the... The dollar symbol in front of it, it is at Behind. the end of it. Yeah, like yeah. what you would write with the cent symbol. So And money is spelled wrong. Yeah, they're, they're, yeah. it's M-O-N-Y, and then good, it good, it's not good. It's like gut, like what you would say in German, G-U-T. Anything is any ding is how yeah. it's written. Um, so I have $50,000. Well, we yeah. Um, and then the note said signature. So whoever wrote this can't speak good English. Yeah, the note said the signature for future letters would be two interlocking circles with three square holes. So we're looking at he um, this kidnapper wants $50,000. He wants 25000 of it in $20 bills, $15,000 out of it in $10 bills, and $10,000 in $5 bills. That's a lot of $5 bills. Anyway, uh, during the search at the kidnapping scene, traces of mud were found on the floor of the nursery. Footprints, which were impossible to measure. And that makes sense because it was a raw, night. It was a rainy, gross night, So someone obviously had to come upstairs. Right. Um, Footprints that were impossible to measure were found under the nursery window. Probably because they were muddy and they couldn't get a good print. Right. I'm guessing. Um, Yeah, because they probably slipped. I have watched CSI, (laughs) and we have watched... uh, Ripper Street. Yes. Uh, two sections of a ladder had been used in reaching the window. One of the two sections was split or broken where it joined the other, indicating that the ladder had broken during the ascent or descent. There were no blood stains in or about the nursery, so that's a positive, but nor were there any fingerprints. H. Norman Schwartzkopf, superintendent of the state police, you might remember that name, and his staff questioned the servants both in the Lindbergh and Morrow households to determine if the crime could have been an inside job. You know what? I, I just think it's interesting that these big famous names mm-hmm. of how so many people are tied, like is it coincidence that Storm and Norman of Desert Storm fame? Yeah, this is the same his, his daddy is His daddy is the investigator that did I mean... Yeah, it, it, same Schwarzkopf. So, it, yeah, if you are familiar with General Norman Schwarzkopf, this is his dad who was the lead investigator on the Lindbergh crimes. I mean, it's 
prominent families that always seem to have a place in history. It's this is Norman. This saying... is Stormin' Norman's daddy, who is the the chief of the New Jersey New Jersey State Police that was doing this investigation. I'm not saying it's the Illuminati. But okay. But it might be the Illuminati. I, I just think it's interesting that how the prominent families of America, yeah. like the royal, the nobles or something yeah, like that, yeah. or whatever, however you want to say I, it, it, are always part of the historical happenings. Funny how that works. Yeah. I mean, doesn't anything of any historical importance ever happen to us common folk? No, because we can't afford for it to happen to us. Anyway. We're not interesting enough. Anyway, moving on. Okay. During the investigation, after one of the servants committed suicide, police said it indicated guilty knowledge of the crime. Mm. Others said she was just frightened to death. Mm. Or it could be just that she had personal issues going on in her life that... Don't know. Yeah. Don't know. Colonel Lindbergh asked friends to communicate with the kidnappers and... They made widespread appeals for the kidnappers to start negotiations. Various underground characters were dealt with in attempts to contact the kidnappers, and numerous clues were advanced and exhausted. Al Capone, no less, under an 11-year sentence for income tax evasion, offered $10,000 reward for the baby's return. He told author Arthur Brisbane, a Hearst newspaper columnist, that he would restore the child to the Limburgs and return for his release from prison. Limburg and authorities turned him down. Now, so he, he wasn't may have doing it out had... of the kindness of his heart. No, but he saw this as a as a meal ticket. Yeah, but he also probably thought it was an underworld thing, and he probably yeah. had the contacts that he could do that. There's going to be a big paper trail coming up. There are a lot of ransom letters about to be written. Yeah. The Limburgs announced that they had authorized two minor mob figures, Salvatore Spitale and Irving Betts, to act as go-betweens in dealing with the kidnappers. In Washington, Gaston B. Means, a private detective with a shady past, tried mm. to interest wealthy socialites in the case. One of those was Evelyn Walsh McLean, owner of the 44-and-a-half-carat Hope Diamond, which of is Titanic also... Fame. Which is also in the Smithsonian. She gave Means $104,000, $100,000 ransom, and $4,000 for expenses on his promise that he could return the baby alive. Mm. A second ransom note was received. Remember the first one was at the the, uh, scene of the crime. Yeah, the poorly written one, yep. So a second ransom note was received by Colonel Lindbergh on March 6th, 1932, postmarked in Brooklyn, New York on March 4th, in which the ransom demanded was increased to $70,000. Yeah, now there's there's a lot. Um so you got to kind of keep up. Remember the baby was taken on March the 1st, which is when they found the first ransom note that was asking for $50,000. Yeah. Then on March 4th, another ransom note was at least postmarked, at least put in the mailed, mail. Yeah. Maybe it wasn't written then, but it was mailed then. And they upped the demand $25,000. Yeah. Now, I think it's important to note here, to, most of these notes about the crime itself are coming from uh, the FBI files where okay. we got the information for this. Gotcha. Stuff. A police conference was then called by the governor at Trenton, New Jersey, which was attended by prosecuting officials, police authorities, and government representatives. It, Lindbergh's a famous person, so there's oh, a, lot sure. of pe- a lot of people getting involved with this. 
Various theories and uh, policies of procedures were discussed. Private investigators also were employed by Colonel Lindbergh's attorney, Colonel Henry Breckenridge. A third ransom note was received by Colonel Lindbergh's attorney on March 8th, informing that an intermediary appointed by the Lindberghs would not be accepted and requested a note in the newspaper. On the same date, Dr. John F. Condon, Bronx, New York City, a retired school principal, published in the Bronx Home News an offer to act as a go-between and to pay an additional $1,000 ransom. The following day, a fourth ransom note was received by Dr. Condon, which indicated that he would be acceptable as a go-between. So it was denied, and now the guy says, okay, come back, and I'll I'll deal with you. I think that's really interesting because it makes me wonder the fact that he is a retired school principal um, as opposed to sort of a public servant or a police officer or a lawyer. Maybe it's just somebody the kidnapper trust. Uh, it's yeah. It's I think that's one of those very, common folk. I think that it that's very interesting, and I wonder if that had something to do with it, or if I I can't imagine that the kidnapper maybe the kidnapper did know of him in some way, shape, or form because the, it was postmarked from the Bronx the ransom letter. So maybe the kidnapper didn't you know maybe they weren't friends or whatever, but he knew, knew him by reputation him. Yeah. and knew that he was an upstanding guy. Okay. Well, this was this latest demand or not demand, but this latest go-between, go between yeah. was approved by Colonel Lindbergh. About March 10th, 1932, Dr. Condon received $70,000 in cash as ransom and immediately started negotiations for payment through newspaper columns using the code name JAFSI. About 8.30 p.m. on March 12th, after receiving an anonymous telephone call, Dr. Condon received a fifth ransom note delivered by Joseph Perron a taxi cab driver who received it from an unidentified stranger. The message stated that another note would be found beneath a stone at a vacant stand 100 feet from an outlying subway station. So we've got six notes in 12 days. Some were delivered by taxi, some were delivered by mail, some were just found under a rock, which seems like a really... A uh, dangerous place if to leave a ransom note, yeah. like just out under a random rock. I, Anybody could find I it. I don't know. I, I mean, it was hidden, and it would be found the next I don't think that would be dangerous. Like back during the Cold War, these drops were I know, and things. I always wonder about that. Like, Yeah, and we're going to do a show on that stuff too one if day. If some, if, like, I, I would be the one that was walking along and found some random paper under a rock and decided to keep it, and then some spy lost his life. Yeah, and then a <laughs> mysterious <laughs> then chalk, an, a mysterious <laughs> chalk mock Mark on the corner of the building means that the drop is ready. Yeah. That's another show. Yeah. This note, the sixth, was found by Dr. Condon as indicated. Following instructions therein, the doctor met an unidentified man who called himself John at Woodlawn Cemetery near 233rd Street and Jerome Avenue. 233rd Street. Dayton doesn't have... No. <laughs> hey, no. We, don't have a, we have a Woodlawn we, Cemetery, but we it's, do, but, but it's not a 233rd Street. Yeah, we don't have that many streets. No, we don't. They discussed payment of the ransom. The stranger agreed to furnish a token of the child's identity. Mm. Condon was accompanied by a bodyguard, except while talking to John. During the next few days, Dr. Condon repeated his advertisements, urging further contact and stating his willingness to pay the ransom. It's so interesting because Charles Lindbergh, you know, Charles and Anne don't know this guy either. So 
it's really, um, I don't know. I think it's fascinating that he had a bodyguard, except when he was talking to this mysterious guy who was allegedly, I guess, the kidnapper. And his bodyguard may have been covered by the Limburgs or by the police or what. Right, yeah. but that's what I'm yeah. saying. Like, the one time that, you know, it if you were not a trusting person and you just give Dr. Condon $70,000 and you let him talk to the kidnapper alone. I'm sure he'd been vetted somehow. Yeah, yeah, I okay. just I think I mean, we have, have to, to assume, be a very very trusting person. I think I think we have to assume some things here. Okay, that he was well known, established, and he wasn't the known that he wasn't the kidnapper. So let's let's just assume that Condon was mm, okay. was vetted. All right. A baby's sleeping suit as a token of identity and a seventh ransom note was received by Doctor Condon on March sixteenth. The suit was delivered to the Lindberghs and later identified as belonging to the baby. So now baby Lindbergh has been gone for at least 16 days. Uh, Condon continued his advertisements and then an eighth ransom note was received on March 21st. And it insisted on complete compliance and advised that the kidnapping had been planned for a year. On March 29th, so now the baby's been gone almost a, a month. Betty Gow, the Lindbergh nurse. The baby was barely born if they've been planning it for a year. Yeah. I, and how long? I got now. I'm I got to go sure back when and the I got to look. Was born. Yeah. How long have they been building this house? So right. Yeah. I don't. I doubt that. Mm-mm. On March 29th, Betty Gow, the Lindbergh nurse, found the infant's thumb guard, which was worn at the time of the kidnapping, near the entrance to the estate. Now I had to Google what a thumb guard was. Yeah. I didn't know what a thumb guard was, but apparently. It's a device that you place on a baby's hand to prevent them from sucking a thumb. I thought you just put Tabasco sauce on the baby's thumb. Oh, my gosh. No. No, that's that's not a good idea. Not for a baby. Maybe when they're a little older. But, yeah, so I would imagine it's like, it's basically kind of like a pacifier. I bet the baby I bet the baby wouldn't suck his thumb if there was Tabasco on it. Probably. So is it kind of like a pacifier but that you no, wear on your it's, thumb? It's like a brace. Oh. I had to Google it and look it up. It's like a brace. They still make them. And, oh, really? Yeah. And they, you, it's like a, you know, like if you sprain your wrist. Yeah. Except it's got a guard that comes up over your thumb so you can't suck your thumb. Huh. Which is not really, I mean, that gives you bad teeth later on. Anyway, um, the following day, so on the 30th of March, a ninth ransom note was received by Dr. Condon threatening to increase the amount to $100,000. Remember, right now it's at seventy-five. And refusing a code for use in the newspaper columns. A 10th ransom note received by Dr. Condon on April 1st, 1932, instructed him to have the money ready the following night, to which Condon replied by an ad in the press. An 11th ransom note was delivered to Condon on April 2nd, 1932, by an unidentified taxi driver who said he received it from an unknown man. Dr. Condon found a 12th ransom note under a stone. He likes doing this, leaving stuff under rocks. In front of a greenhouse at 3225 East Tremont Avenue, Bronx, New York, as instructed in the 11th note. And then shortly thereafter, on the same evening, so on the evening of the 2nd, um, by following the instructions contained in the 12th note, Condon again met whom he believed to be, quote-unquote, John, to reduce the demand back to the original 50000 This amount was handed to the stranger in exchange for a receipt and a 13th note containing instructions to the effect that the kidnapped child could be found on a boat named Nellie near Martha's Vineyard, Massachusetts. 
So it's very interesting that they issued him a receipt. Yeah, and I really doubt if this guy had planned it for a year. No. Because I think a real kid, I mean, knowing what we know now, because we've watched so much CSI yeah. oh, we're and experts. Ripper Street, yeah, that you're leaving, every time you write a note, you're leaving evidence. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, the stranger then walked north into the park woods, and the following day, an unsuccessful search for the baby was made near Martha's Vineyard. The search was later repeated, and Dr. Condon was positive that he would recognize John if he ever saw him again. Remember, he's met him twice now in person. And all this stuff is going to come into play during the trial. On May 12th, 1932, the body of the kidnapped baby was accidentally found, partly buried, and badly decomposed about four and a half miles southeast of the Lindbergh home, 45 feet from the highway near Mount Rose, New Jersey, in Mercer County. The discovery was made by William Allen, an assistant on a truck driven by Orville Wilson. Now, we're going to leave out the details of the condition and injuries to the baby because it's pretty gruesome. Um, But the body was positively identified and cremated at Trenton, New Jersey, on May 13, 1932. So, um, from the time that he was taken, March 1st, to the time that the money was exchanged, the receipt was issued, and instructions saying that the child could be found on a boat, that was March, or, um, April 2nd, and then the baby wasn't found for a full m- month and a week on May 12th. So I can imagine how exasperated and, and just hope, you know, it, yeah. it's got to be rough for the Lindberghs over all this time, especially when they, you know, they've given the money, they've said that the baby's here, and then the baby's not there, and then they have to just wait. Yeah. Um, the coroner's examination showed that the child had been dead for about two months and that the death was caused by a blow to the head. So the baby was killed, I think we can safely assume, on the night the baby was taken. Yes. Whether accidentally or intentionally. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So let's go back to when the baby was taken and get a little bit more in depth as to what was going on in the investigation. So on March 2nd, 1932, after a conference with Attorney General, FBI Director J. Edgar Hoover had contacted the headquarters of the New Jersey State Police at Trenton, New Jersey. He officially informed the organization that the United States Department of Justice would afford Colonel H. Norman Schwarzkopf, the superintendent of the New Jersey State Police again, the assistance and cooperation of the FBI in bringing about the apprehension of the parties responsible for the kidnapping. So the FBI was involved with this like right From away. From the get-go. From the get-go. Which, I, I, and I don't know, is that common, not common? We'll get into that. Okay. Rules and laws change and what the FBI can do because of this kidnapping. And we'll, and we'll get into that towards okay. the end. Okay, yeah. so I guess my question was, like, if it had been, like you mentioned at the top of the episode, if it was just guy on the street, would the FBI have been no. involved, or was it because no. it was Charles Lindbergh? Because it was Charles Lindbergh, he was such a public okay, figure. Okay, got it. Jay Edgar advised the New Jersey State Police that they could call upon the Bureau for any facilities or resources which the latter might be capable of extending. So the FBI is now involved. And like you said, I think he's the FBI is only involved because he, he's a Charles Lindbergh's a public hero. Right. Okay. 
The special agent in charge of New York City Office of the Bureau, which at that time covered the New Jersey District, was instructed accordingly and upon instructions from the director. The special agent in charge communicated with the New Jersey State Police and the New York City Police, offering any assistance which the Bureau might be able to lend them in the matter of the Lindbergh baby kidnapping. During the next few weeks, the Bureau was acting merely in an auxiliary capacity there being no federal jurisdiction. So this is what you are asking. There's no right. federal jurisdiction. It's just Charles Lindbergh. Yeah. Charles Lindbergh's baby's missing. Uh, American all hands on American deck, yeah. hero, the lone eagle. Gotcha. We're, we're, we're going to find this baby. Gotcha. However, on May 13th, 1932, the president directed that all governmental investigative agencies should place themselves at the disposal of of the state of New Jersey, and that the FBI should serve as a clearinghouse and coordinating agency for all investigations, in this case, conducted by the federal investigative units. Hmm. On May 23, 1932, the FBI in New York City informed banks in greater New York, this is when it gets really technical and where the FBI has the, the capability to do this. And this is really interesting. It's hard to follow, but try your best, because we're going to explain it as simply as we can, but it, it does right. get a little... So at this point, convoluted. Th- so the day after the baby was found is when the president directed that all hands on deck, we're going to find the guy that did this. Yeah. Okay. So on May 23rd, 1932, the FBI in New York City informed banks in greater New York that the Bureau was coordinate, the coordinating agency for all governmental activity in the case. A close watch for ransom money was requested. The New Jersey State Police announced on May 26, 1932, the offer of reward not to exceed $25,000 for information resulting in the apprehension and conviction of the kidnapper or kidnapper. So, you know, again, we're going back a little bit back in time here. In compliance with the request made by Colonel Schwarzkopf, copies of this notice of reward were forwarded to the FBI and to all law enforcement officials and agencies throughout the United States. La, there you go. There's how my dad was picked up as the Lindbergh baby. <laughs> so on I mean, June twenty five thousand dollars, I would say that your dad was the Lindbergh baby. And then, well, that's what the guy was hoping. Yeah, he was hoping to get yeah. twenty five thousand. On June tenth, nineteen thirty two, Violet Sharp, a waitress in the home of Mrs. Lindbergh's mother, Mrs. Dwight Morrow, who had been under investigation by the authorities, committed suicide by swallowing poison when she was about to be. Questioned. So is this the... I th- I'm thinking this, this is, is the, the same, same one. I'm thinking this is the same lady. Okay. However, her movements on the night of March 1st, 1932, had been carefully checked, and it was soon and def- definitely ascertained that she had no connection with the uh, abduction. So, it, again, it could have been just... It was all too much for it her. It could have been her nerves, she, and yeah, it, she was I too just, close, um, and it, yeah. whatever. Okay. So in, 19, in September 1933, President Franklin Delano Roosevelt stated in a meeting with Director Hoover that all work on the case be centralized in the Department of Justice. So this is a long time. From yeah. May 32 to September 33, there's no trace of... Who did this? Of the $50,000 ransom money. Right. It's gone. It's, it's coming. He requested the director to convey his views to Attorney General Cummins with the suggestion that the Attorney General make a request of the Commissioner of the Internal Revenue Service, Hmm. the IRS, which, folks, it's tax season, pay your taxes. 
either through the president or directly for a detailed report of all work performed by the IRS intelligence unit. That's pretty smart. On October, yeah, oh yeah. Well, that's how they got Compone. On October 19th, 1933, it was officially announced that the FBI would have exclusive jurisdiction insofar as the federal government was concerned in the handling of any investigative feature of this case. The president's proclamation requiring the return of the treasury of all gold and gold certificates was a valuable aid in the case, and so much as $40,000 of the ransom money had been paid in gold certificates. So a little history lesson here. Used to dollar bills and U.S. money would say gold certificate or silver certificate. You could take that note to the bank. You could take a $10 gold certificate to the bank and turn it in and get $10 worth of gold. So they must have, and we didn't mention this um, previously, but they must have in those 13 ransom notes had some degree of, in, in the newspaper, some degree of negotiation because he was very specific. I want $50,000, I want $25,000 in 20s, $15,000 in fives, whatever it was in tens. But now he's saying, like, he is accepting gold. Um, well, that certificates. Was, that was the money. Of... A $5 bill was a gold certificate. Oh, it's not like a $5 bill? It is. It's a $5 bill, except it said gold certificate. Oh. Or it said silver certificate. Oh. Yeah, that was just the currency. Oh. So it wasn't like... Well, I wonder was... when it stopped doing that. That That's a whole other show. Right about <laughs> right about this time. Oh, okay. When, when, when Roosevelt did this. Um what right there? It says the president's proclamation requiring the return. Oh of the yeah, so this is what brought it. Oh, so this somebody is, what brought is the not end. paying attention. No, I did. I just didn't fully understand it. Yeah. So this it, is like this I said. This gets brought complicated. The gold standard to an end, essentially. Yes, it, okay. it did. Okay, wow. so all that money is supposed to be in the vault at Fort Knox. Mm. Yeah. Okay. So anyway, hard enough to follow. This is why it had to come to one. As much as it's hard for us to follow, this is why it had to go to one agency to coordinate to make all this happen because it was a very complicated case that stretched over different state lines and it needed somebody like the FBI to coordinate and do all this. And so smart people did this. And another kind of interesting thing too is that clearly either this person who was writing these ransom notes is either of foreign birth or is not very well educated because of the syntax in the notes. So the fact that it is so complicated and not like really easy to catch this guy, I think that's interesting too. Absolutely correct. And that's how a lot of this is going to get tied in when they, we've already mentioned Hopman was the guy that gets accused of this. Yeah, we're going to find out who he is. Yeah, we're going to find out who he is in a little bit. So, at the time of the proclamation, a large portion of this money was known to be outstanding. Therefore, this phase of the F investigation was emphasized. So there were a lot of these bills out. So that was a way for them to like... Bring them all back. Bring, bring them all, and we, let's watch for... Because we paid this, so let's watch when these things start coming in. So on January 17th, 1934... A circular letter was issued by the New York City Bureau Office to all banks in their branches in New York City requesting an extremely close watch for all the ransom certificates. And, and there you go. And in February yep. 1934, 
Uh, all bureau offices were supplied with copies of the bureau's revised pamphlet containing the serial numbers of the ransom bills. The New York City Bureau Office distributed copies of this pamphlet to each employee handling currency in banks, clearinghouses, grocery stores in certain selected communities, insurance companies, gasoline filling stations, airports, department stores, post offices, telegraph companies. So anywhere money is going to be exchanged. Because we didn't have credit cards. They had. And they didn't have Bitcoin. Right. So following the distribution of these booklets containing the serial number of the ransom currency, there were also prepared and similarly distributed by the Bureau currency key cards, which in convenient form kind of set forth the inclusive serial numbers of all the ransom notes which had been paid. So they blanketed New York with this stuff. It was followed by frequent personal contacts with bank officials and with individual employees in an effort to keep their interest alive. And this is the FBI going out and putting a lot of... uh a lot of people on the, ground, on the street yeah. to make this happen. Now, prior to this time, the passing of ransom bills had been reported to either the FBI, the New Jersey State Police, or the New York City Police Department, none of which had complete information on this point. Therefore, arrangements were effected whereby investigation of all such ransom bills detected in the future could immediately be conducted jointly by representatives of the three interested agencies. Yeah. So I think it's important to note, this is like the, the FBI is a new bureau. Right. So they're learning a lot, and a lot of lessons learned with this. So they're, they're applying this and kind of making stuff up positively <laughs> as they go <laughs> yeah. to make this, which is going to be used in future kidnapping oh, yeah. cases down the road. Now, one of the byproducts of the case was a mass of misinformation received from well-meaning but uninformed and highly imaginative individuals. And Did they have Facebook? Deluge of letters written by demented persons, publicity seekers, and frauds, of course. Yeah, I mean... Nothing like money to bring out the best in humanity. I mean, we're, we're sitting here watching the news tonight, and one of, the, one of the stories is fraud with, uh, with, with the vaccinations, and the, yeah, the news oh. have a report... Don't, you know, here's the legitimate websites to right. go. Don't, and, don't you know, get your vaccination off the corner. <laughs> d- yeah, don't get your vaccinations off the guy at the corner, okay? <laughs> it's not the right stuff. It was essential, however, that all possible clues... People re- sometimes just suck. You they know do. That? They do. All possible clues, regardless of the prospect of success, be carefully followed, and it was impossible in the vast majority of instances to determine at the inception whether they would be material or false. So you got to follow through on the leads that might lead you nowhere. It might waste a bunch of your time and resources, but you got to follow it. On March 4th, 1932, a con man named Gaston B. Means, remember we talked about him earlier in the show... He was approached by Mrs. Evelyn Walsh McLean of Washington, D.C., who felt that she might be of material assistance to Colonel Lindbergh in procuring the return of his child. Remember that Gaston B. Means offered to be a private detective for them. Mrs. McLean, of the, she was the owner of the Hope Diamond, had become acquainted with Means as a result of some investigative work, which Means had performed for her husband some years before. He informed her that he felt certain he could secure a contact with the kidnappers inasmuch as he had been invited to participate in a big kidnapping some weeks before, but had declined. Means claimed that his friend was responsible for the Lindbergh kidnapping, and the following day, he reported to Mrs. McLean that he had made a contact with the person who had the child. He successfully induced Mrs. McLean to hand over to him $100,000, Remember, part of that 4000 was for his efforts, and the rest was ransom. 
to be used in paying the ransom, which he said um, had been doubled until April 17th, 1932. He kept Mrs. McLean waiting daily expecting the return of the child. A con man. Yeah. Again, people suck. They're going to take advantage of anything to try to make a dollar off this. Off, you know, the Limbergs and, you know, their baby was kidnapped. And by this time, they know the baby is... No, they don't know the baby is dead right now, but... No. It's just... Trying to make a penny off this. Yeah. It's terrible. Okay. I think... We might be at a good place to take a pause. Like yep. we said, this is going to be a two-parter right here. So let's let's take a pause, and we will get back more into the investigation and trial into the trial. of the century. And a few stories that will just supplement mm-hmm. what we're doing with this. All right. So far, it, it's... It's pretty interesting. It's, it's, it's interesting. It's complicated. And it's... I, I don't want to say it's the birth of the FBI's investigative and how they do things but, but they learned a lot they're learning it's a lot definitely how to do this the early days interstate of the coordination and mm-hmm. things going on yeah absolutely so, think it's a good place to take a break for the I night i think it's a great place to take a break all right so hope you're enjoying the show kim anything else we need to talk about tonight uh i, don't I can think so. see your face I know. Yeah, we got rid of Unfortunately. the old pop filters, and we have some new ones right here, which yeah. I can now clearly see, Kim. We don't look as fancy, but um, we can at least see each other now. It, it's easier to read the, read notes, the notes. and Yeah. yeah. So. All right. Um, no, I don't have anything else. You want to find us on the socials? We're on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Twitter is a lost hour. Facebook is an hour of your life. Instagram, an hour of your life. And if you want to write to us, you can write us on Google at alosthour at gmail.com. Um, we'd love to hear from you. If you have any good Lindbergh stories to tell us. If you have any uh, interesting information about your vaccination, let us know. I'm curious how many of you, um, you know, have gotten vaccinations. How long did you have to wait? Were you supposed to get a vaccination? And then there was a long line and they ran out. Well, I'd love to hear your vaccination stories. We would love to have you on the show because we, we do have that capability. We do. All right. So anyway. I think that about wraps it up. I think that's going to wrap it up for tonight. Okay. So nothing else? That's it. All right. So from our studios in Sugar Creek Township. Thanks for spending an hour of your life with us. See you next week as we finish up and wrap up this story. So far, all our sources on this week's show have been from Wikipedia and FBI.gov, and there will be more next week.